everyone to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now here's the show. Welcome to Talking Reef Podcast, Episode 15. Well, I'd like to welcome everybody that's uh, listening on NHCWX Radio. Uh, We recently started doing a syndication with them, and uh, this syndication is going to occur every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Basically, a week later, uh, our episodes are going to be put onto this uh, radio station for everybody to listen. So the people that are joining us from this radio station like to welcome you into the show. Uh, This show is done by myself, Rob, and uh, my co-host, Matt, and basically what we're going to do is, on a weekly basis, we give you uh, about a 30-minute episode regarding saltwater tanks and marine reef tanks and and the such, and we answer listener questions and talk about a whole bunch of different stuff. If you are new to the show and you have any questions that you'd like to submit or anything you'd like to talk about, topics or anything you'd like to suggest, Feel free to send any of that information into podcast at talkingreef.com or feel free to go to the website www.talkingreef.com and you can visit the forums and post anything that you want in there, any suggestions, comments, feedback, uh, anything, any of that can go into there. So um, that's basically a quick overview of the show and at this point we're going to move into our first topic uh, for this week. The first topic we're going to talk about this week uh, is going to be actually be the first in a series of episodes we're going to be doing. Uh, this series is on filtration. It's something that me and Matt have been kind of discussing for a little bit now. And we're going to basically break filtration down into uh, a couple different sections. And we're going to try to go into in depth on, on these various types of filtration. Uh, We're going to break the series down into mechanical filtration, biological, and chemical. And this week we're going to start off talking about mechanical filtration. So the first thing that we're going to mention with uh, mechanical filtration is there are multiple different types of mechanical filter media. So Matt, I'm going to let you jump in here real quick and start introducing the different types of mechanical filtration and we'll move on from there. Cool. Um, well, firstly, I must say hi to anybody that's listening on a podcast, or whether that be via the radio, um, as Rob's obviously been uh, talking for a while now. Um, sorry, I'll shut up now. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> it's like, pass the ball, is my go. Um, yeah, I let the yeah. guy on the show for one episode, now he's trying to take it over. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, this is basically with um, me- mechanical filtration, um, there is multiple different things you can use to um, take debris um, waste out of the, the water and um, it, it sort of depends what sort of filter they're actually going to be going into so you've got things like sponge floss um, protein skimmers and obviously the, the simple one of just siphoning the debris out um, I, I think uh, if you just go through what what unit it's going to be placed into then you can more or less expl- use which mechanical media is necessary um, yes I and if you yes I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off um, a couple of the common types, uh, the the filter floss and the sponge filters, um, from my perspective, from what I know, they're used in a, in two different systems. Uh, the the filter floss, kind of the the regular plain uh, filter pads, are usually you know white in the in the stuff that I've seen. 
Um, these are the type that you're going to most commonly find in your hang on back filters or in your um, canister filters. Sorry, I forgot, couldn't remember what they're called. The canister filters. Uh, whereas the sponge filters, and Matt, jump in, let me know if it's any bit different from uh, you know, the stuff that you find in the UK. But the, the sponge filters are usually seen on the, the, the small filters that are put into uh, small types of tanks. I'm not, like the, the ones that are driven by air pumps and stuff like that. Do you have different types of uh, sponge filters other than those? Yeah, it's, um, in, in, in the UK we don't generally actually get uh, hang-on-back filters very often. Very rare to see them. Most of the, the mechanical filters you'll see are either uh, sponge inserts going into things like internal filters. Okay. Or um, sponge layers going into external filters. Yeah, most, um, of, most of our hang-on-back filters, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, actually will use a, a... It's usually a combination of a mechanical filter and a chemical filter. Uh, and usually it's, it's put into, like, sheets, and there's, like, a layer of filter floss and a layer of usually a, a, some kind of carbon pad. But that does bring up a great point with the hang-on-back filters. And I, um, when we were talking about this, I, I found that kind of a little bit shocking that uh, the people over in the U.K. don't commonly use hang-on-back filters because hang-on-back filters are, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. Those are the type of filters that hang on the back of the tank, uh, suck up water from the tank, and basically shoot it right back in. Uh, those are fairly common in, in the States. And usually what happens is you have people that are converting from freshwater tanks or are somewhat familiar with freshwater tanks, and they're starting a saltwater tank, and they think, well, hey, I need a filter. This is a filter that I've seen or used before. I'll get one of these because it worked good with the freshwater. So I, th I found it a little, a little interesting that you guys don't, or, you know, hang-on-back filters aren't common over there. No, they're not. It's very rare. You don't see many places selling them that... The majority of the filters over here for sort of slightly bigger tanks and marine tanks are mainly externals. Uh huh. Like canister um, type filters or something? Yeah, the canister type gotcha. filters. So you've got things like um, Fluvalves, very popular over here. And Fluval, yep. We, Fluvals and Ehim, yep. Those are both very popular brands over here. So yeah, you, you get quite a lot of people using things like that, and you get. Um, uh, a few people using internals as well, which are mainly just sort of sponge, but some of them have got quite a lot uh, biological part to it as well. Okay, so I'm going to reel the conversation back in a little bit and briefly kind of highlight the two main types of mechanical media that we've been talking about, the filter floss and the sponge filters. Now, basically what these types of filter media do is they they essentially just act as a plain barrier. They allow the water through and they're going to catch any of the foreign objects or the, the, the waste or the detritus that's in the, in the water and allow the clean water to pass through. Um, this is you know basically the same for the floss and for the sponge filters. Now there's a couple drawbacks to this. While they do do a good job filtering out a lot of that stuff, that stuff is collected and it's kept in the filter media. And what this leads to is a lot of maintenance. And usually, depending on the type of system you have, you have to replace these fil this, this media often. So these are good for uh, different types of situations. Uh, depending on the type of tank you have, you may or may not need the, these types of filters, which we're going to get into that a little bit more later. But uh, one of the major drawbacks of mechanical filtration is they can get costly as you have to replace the 
media on a regular basis or it's going to cause major uh, problems in your tank. So the next part of the mechanical filtration, which I'm going to let Matt talk, a talk about a little bit once, uh, once I mention it, is the manual siphoning. And basically, quickly, um, this is something that per my recommendation is usually used in bare bottom tanks and shallow sand beds and not normally recommended for deep sand beds. Um, is there anything else you want to add to that? No, it's, it's just simply removing the, the debris that's, a lot of it gets caught behind your rock work and, you know, in, in, in your sand if you've only got like a shallow sand bed. And it's just trying to get rid of some of that out of the, the waste out of the system and just getting it chucked away. Yes. Now, depending on the type of system that you have, again, a lot of people's tanks are different. And this is, again, my, my personal recommendation. When you're running a deep sand bed and you go in and use... Uh, Siphoning off the surface, I don't see any major problems with. Where I see that it can be detrimental is when you start using those vacuums and you start prodding into your sand bed. And what you're actually doing is you're pulling out a lot of that very beneficial bacteria that's in your sand bed that's causing your deep sand bed to function properly. So it can be uh, a bad thing to start siphoning in a deep sand bed. But yes, it's some great points that you can go in there with uh, a small siphon tube uh, or a hose, depending on what you have, and and gather up any any debris that is collected. A lot of that can actually be prevented in some cases, where you if you have uh, proper current or strong current that does actually move a lot of that stuff and keeps it from settling. Uh, but yes, in in some areas in your tank, you're going to get there's always going to be some dead spots where stuff collects, and um, you can actually go in there with a siphon and go ahead and clean it out. Yeah, one of the big key things with mechanical filtration is, is just regularly maintaining it and cleaning out whatever that's mechanically taking it out, whether that be sponge, whether that be floss in the, in the top of the trickle tower in your sump, or whether that be floss in a canister. It, at the end of the day, it'll, you just get slower flow rates when it clogs up, and you just get a build-up, and you end up with sort of ammonia spikes, etc. Absolutely, yes. Uh, now, the next item that I wanted to talk about and mention real quick was something that's n not commonly found, at least uh, over here, not commonly found in saltwater tanks, but is almost the normal or the standard for freshwater tanks, and that's the undergravel filters. Um, undergravel filters are normally not recommended for saltwater tanks, uh, but there are some specific cases where they can be used if you know what you're doing and if you're careful with that. Uh, do you want to explain a little bit more about those? Yeah, um, undergravel filter is just simply a plate that will sit underneath your, your sand and use the actual sand layer as the, the biological and the mechanical filter. And it just either draws water through the sand or pushes water back up through the sand. Uh, my personal preference is to run it reversed. So basically run water down through the uh, tubes into the plate underneath and actually force the water up through the sand because you don't tend to trap debris in it then. Correct. Now, uh, I think it's very important to mention, especially for any any people that are new to the saltwater tank hobby, that using the undergravel filters is not, uh, to my knowledge and from my experience, a common filtration method used in marine tanks. Uh, you have to know what you're doing and you have to be careful and to set the system up right. If you set it up in a normal fashion 
you're actually going to be causing the system to draw the waste through to the bottom of the tank. And this is how it works in a freshwater tank. What happens in a saltwater tank is all of that waste is going to collect underneath the tank and it's not going to be metabolized properly. It's going to collect, it's going to cause algae problems, ammonia spikes, nitrate problems, stuff like that. Um, but as Matt mentioned, if you reverse the flow, and this is usually done with a certain types of power heads that can actually be put into reverse. And normally where water would come out of the power head, they'll suck water in and blow it out through the normal inlet. And it'll cause a, a reverse flow in the, in the under gravel filter. And what it'll do is it'll cause um, the under gravel filter to force water up slowly through the deep sand bed. And this can actually help move water through the sand bed in a, in a better way. And it'll allow the, the sand bed to actually function in some cases, if it's set up right, a little bit more efficiently. Uh, the deep sand bed is a uh, anaerobic environment. It's an area where anaerobic bacteria thrive, low oxygen area, and it's that those types of bacteria that actually remove the nitrates from your water. So, again, this is something that you really need to know what you're doing to set it up. You need to be familiar with with your tank. I would not recommend this for any newcomers. Um, there is an, a, one other caveat, uh, the last point we wanted to make about that, and uh, you want to make that point? Yeah, there's um, what my, my personal opinion or what I found with um, underground filters is if, if you're running it in the normal method, whether it be air driven or with um, some sort of powerhead driving, uh, sucking water through the sand, they'll, they'll work well for the first probably six, seven, eight months, and then all of a sudden all hell will break loose and the tangled start falling apart where it just gets saturated full of debris and it's yeah. just hard to bring it back from there but if, if you are running it in reverse which is also um which is quite a nice thing is if you can run it through an external for an external canister filter and instead of spraying it back in through a spray bar or a nozzle or just a normal outlet you can actually pump it back through the under gravel which seems to work very well as well okay so yeah there's there's a handful of different ways but again i, I, I i'm sure you'll agree with me this is not a novice filtration method. This should probably be kept for people that are familiar with saltwater tanks and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. I would personally only be using it on more of a, a very much a, a reef-only tank with a very low stocking level on fish. Yes, because it's the fish that are produce uh, a large amount of the uh, of the waste, the free waste that's going to be moving through through the tank and that would get caught up into the system. So yeah, that's some great points. Definitely. So at this point, um, the next part about working with uh, mechanical filters is that they can actually cause more problems than they're worth. Uh, in some cases, they can, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if they're not cleaned and maintained regularly, they can actually cause nitrate spikes in your tank as the, the waste collects in there. Um, usually, these types of mechanical filters are placed in as mentioned, a hang-on-back filter or something like that, what usually happens is they're put in, into an aerobic environment, which is a, a, an environment, a part in the water column where you have high concentrations of oxygen. And it's that aerobic bacteria in that environment that produces your nitrates. So if they're not regularly maintained and they're not taken care of, that's where you lead to problems. But that aside, there are some other negatives that can come from using mechanical filtration, especially when dealing with 
uh, refugiums and such. And Matt, I'll let you discuss that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's um, there's a system which I've tried before, um, and I don't know how many people are aware of it, called the uh, ecosystem method, which is basically uh, creating a refugium under your tank. Normally, it has uh, a mud stuff and uh, mud sort of um, compound in it, which is normally called miracle mud, and you grow calerpa and etc. in there. You create a um, an environment which basically um, causes the growth of lots of different small creatures where they have no sort of predators. Correct. And thus they can slowly be released into the tank. Um, they go from obviously the sump where there's, there's lots of them growing and they'll get slowly sort of sent to the top tank via your pump. Well the problem is is if you have a mechanical filter it filters everything out. So you spend a lot of time creating these, these lovely creatures to feed your corals and your fish and they get chewed up and eaten and it's completely a waste of time. <clears throat> right. So um, just so everybody knows, refugiums are something that we're going to discuss in a, in a little later show, uh, later in the series. We'll go into some more. We'll go more in depth into those. But yes, uh, if you place any type of mechanical filtration between your refugium area and the pumps that do your water return, you're basically defeating a lot of the beneficial purposes of having that refugium. Uh, a lot of your copepods and amphipods. Uh, just to, to mention a couple, are grown in there, and that's where they flourish. And what will happen is when they, they'll get transferred up to the tank, uh, usually through your pumps, and a lot of times they'll survive that, that the transfer up to the tank through a pump, depending on the type of pumps you have. But, yeah, uh, the point that Matt brings up is if you place mechanical filtration in there, it catches all of that, and it's going to block it all, and it's going to kill it all, and then they're going to die, and uh, then that's going to cause more uh, problems with it collecting the excess waste and more reason that you have to replace them. So all in all, uh, mechanical filtration, it has its place. And in my personal opinion, they, they can be used uh, depending on your situation. Um, but personally, if you are running a, a standard Berlin style system, which is your deep sand bed, your live rock, a good protein skimmer, and lots of current, uh, in most cases, you don't need any type of mechanical filtration. Uh, this is, I you know, I'm, I'm not sure how, you know, your perspective on this, Matt, but I'll tell you what. When I first started off in, in, in the hobby and doing saltwater tanks, I had come from a long, long history of doing freshwater tanks, and that was probably one of the hardest concepts for me to overcome, is the fact that I don't need mechanical filtration. No, no, I, I totally agree. I was... Um... On my first marine tank, I think I had two lots of canister filters loaded to the hilt with um, biological media, floss, sponges, everything. Uh -huh. Yeah, you just um, you you think that it's it's like a mental barrier that you can't get over. And, and you know, in the groups and the forums that I'm in, uh, I see it all the time. People come in, and when we tell them that you don't need a mechanical filter, you don't need this stuff, they just they're, it's almost they're like they're in shock, and they'll, they'll sometimes they'll say, "Oh, okay, really?" They they'll go and they'll do it anyways, and then you'll see them. They'll come back in a couple months, and they're saying, "Well, I'm having these problems, and you know this, that, and the other thing." And you find out that they went and used mechanical filtration anyways. So it, it's it's a real hard concept for uh, newcomers, especially those that are moving over from freshwater. Yeah, me personally, um, I, I don't have any mechanical filtration except. 
a, a protein skimmer. That is it. Most yes, people don't necessarily see a skimmer as a, a mechanical filtration. Sorry, I cut you off there, Rob. Oh, um, but uh, it, it, it is. It's, it's a very good mechanical filtration system, and it doesn't destroy anything. Yes. Now, so there is. for my main display tank, I have, I, I'm pretty much in the same situation as, as you. Uh, I have uh, my, my protein skimmer that runs, and the only other type of filtration that could be considered mechanical in my tank is in my overflow box. There's actually um, a type of filter floss. It's not, not like the filter floss you would normally think of. Um, it's got larger holes. But it's, so it doesn't it, look like cotton wool then. Yeah, it, it's it's essentially it's preventing any very large items from going through the overflow down into my into my refugium that's underneath my tank. Uh, if there's anything large that would go into the overflow, it's going to stop that. Uh, but a lot of the very small stuff, it'll 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 flow right through that. So um, it's kind of a pain because that's something that I have to replace anywhere from every uh, usually about every two to three weeks. I have to replace that, uh, but that's the only type of mechanical filtration I have, and I don't even really consider that mechanical. You know, I don't consider that in, when I'm discussing my filtration. But everything else is is uh, all natural. Everything's done with the live sand and the live rock. Uh, there are a couple other types of you know when you get into the chemical filtration, even in a reef tank or using a system like this, there there is definitely a time and a place for chemical filtration. I think we'll get into that into the, one of the next shows. Yeah, definitely. I, th I think the thing that um, we ought to move on to now is actually skimmers, protein skimmers, and uh, the, the massive benefits they can do for you. Yes, protein skimmers are one of, probably one of the, I'm going to say second best to live rock in filtering your water. And, you know, live rock is usually a lot of times by newcomers not thought of as a filter but uh, in, in a properly set up tank with a proper amount of current that is number one in your filtration but yes number two would be the protein skimmers now the way protein skimmers work is you usually have a large tower or column and water is is sent in uh, to this column and air is then injected into the column either through some kind of venturi valve that'll suck the air in as the water is going into the column or uh, some different type of skimmers will actually use like uh, what do they call those little wood like an air stone wood yeah an air stone, stone. yeah either with the the stone or the the little wood blocks that uh, and basically what happens is you you create thousands or millions of these little micro bubbles and that's what you want is lots and lots of micro bubbles and what happens is these bubbles form in in this column and as the bubbles rise the debris in the tank, the detrius, uh, protein, any organic compounds is basically what it does. Any organic compounds will actually stick to the bubble itself. And as the bubble rises, it collects all of this stuff in this column. And what will happen is eventually these bubbles collect and collect and collect and it gets to the top. And then they overflow into a collection cup. And what happens is those bub bubbles overflow and they pop and everything stuck to the bubble, all of your organic compounds, are then dropped into a collection cup. And that's kind of an overview on how the the protein skimmers work. And they are an absolute necessity. If there's anything that I would say is required, it would be a protein skimmer.
Yeah, d- definitely, I do agree. I've um, I have actually run a complete system before um, without a protein skimmer, which did did work very well. Um, but I personally would definitely have a uh, protein skimmer. It makes life a lot easier, yes. and you have a lot more leeway to make mistakes. Yep, with a and- protein skimmer. Yeah, protein skimmer is one of those things that a lot of people, like I said, they they may not think of as a filtration. And when they actually, when they finally get convinced that it's something that they need, they'll try to skimp on a little bit or whatever. Try to save the, save the money. It's very important that you don't have to spend a lot of money, but you have to make sure that you make a good investment and get a good protein skimmer that is properly rated for. the the amount of water in your system. Remember, it's not just the amount of water in your tank because a lot of people run sumps or refugiums that actually add to your total water volume. So if you've got an 80-gallon tank with a 20-gallon sump, you want to make sure that you have something that's rated to handle that 100 gallons of water volume. But yeah, it's important to make sure that you make a good investment in something that its minimum rating can handle your tank. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there's different types of um, skimmers. I actually personally run a, um, a hang-on back skimmer on my main tank, uh-huh. uh, which is very good, which actually has a built-in UV. Um, and on my very small sort of nano tank, I actually have a air-driven skimmer, which I actually love to pieces and works particularly well. But it, because it's air-driven and the, the wooden blocks actually... Um, block up extremely quickly. Yes, that's a a component that has to be replaced on a regular basis, doesn't it? It does, very much so. How often do you replace those? uh, Once every four weeks, and that's pushing it. That's really pushing it. Yeah. After three weeks, it's nowhere near as effective as it used to be. Uh And they work very well, but they're they're sort of... High maintenance. It's it's another pound. By the time you take the skimmer out and you have to put it back in, and it's quite a lot of maintenance involved. Yeah. Now, is that's a is that like a a in sump filter or an inline skimmer? I mean. Yes, it's actually sat in a compartment in the back of my um, little nano reef I have, which Uh is um, it's just a bit of a pain. Yeah. uh, The efficiency drops off so quickly. You you do really have to keep on top of it. But on the flip side to that, it does work extremely well. Yes, and one of the reasons that those um, those protein skimmers that run off of those little air stones or those wood blocks work well is because they they produce a lot more smaller bubbles than than a, a standard uh, Venturi style skimmer can. Now, don't get me wrong, the Venturi style skimmers can can do a, an excellent job, uh, but those wood blocks are known for for producing very small micro bubbles that. And that's usually what you're looking for in your in your protein skimmer. So, yeah, it, it's it's important to when you're looking at your different types of filtration, to always keep in mind the the maintenance cost, the components that have to be replaced on a regular basis. Yeah, definitely. There's one thing I will mention when we're talking about skimmers is that, um, as I said earlier, that about um, a type of system uses Miracle Mud, which is um, the ecosystem method. Uh-huh. Actually, doesn't use a skimmer at all. See, now I'm not very familiar with that system. Um, do you have a little bit of background information about those systems, you know, where they yeah, came from? Yeah, definitely. Um, my, uh, I think if, if you listen to the, the previous uh, podcast, I said I used to have um, a six-foot tank, which was in yes. the lounge, and um, that was actually run on a milk or mud type system, and um, it never had a skimmer. And for a short period of time, I actually had an air, a very small air-driven one in there, which... It did. It did work to a certain extent, but it really didn't need it because it was just the way that system worked. 
I personally wouldn't ad- advise um, ripping off skimmers off your off your tanks. Yeah. But done in the correct way, you you don't necessarily need one. Me personally, after doing that system, I would just have a skimmer for safe. It it just makes life a lot easier. Right, and it's definitely really not going to hurt anything to have your skimmer on there. Skimmers are very, very beneficial to any type of tank. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. It's um, it, it the only time that I would say not to use a skimmer is if you you are trying to stick to something like the ecosystem method, where you are trying to create um a lot of um th- this predator-free zone, and you want a lot of the 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 smaller amphipods and copepods in your tank, skimmers can take them out, especially if they're quite aggressive um, Venturi type skimmers, where you have um, some of them even have um, the impeller within the Venturi's even more, it's like comb, so it's like injection, so you get Mm -hmm. even more bubbles in there, they can sometimes strip out everything you've just spent ages putting in Yes, so and that brings up a good point of when you're setting up your filtration system, um, whether you're using a refugium, a sump, canister filters, uh, a lot of the points that we've talked about so far in this episode actually stress the fact that it's important where you place your different filtration components. Um, you know, placing your mechanical filtration in front of your refugium, making sure that your your skimmer, where its intake is, where it sucks the water in, um, isn't in a place where it's going to suck up stuff that you want left in the tank. Um, skimming is, you know, like I said, skimming is a very good thing. Um, but it's going to remove all of that stuff. And as Matt mentioned, uh, if you have beneficial uh, stuff that may be coming out of your refugium that could get sucked up in there, some of that, uh, depending on the type of skimmer you have, could get removed. The other thing to mention is uh, if you regular f- regularly feed your tank um, with phytoplankton or uh, rotifers, zooplankton, all that stuff will get removed with a protein skimmer. So if you have a small tank that you run a a protein skimmer on, it's usually a good idea to shut off the protein skimmer for a little while after you feed the the plankton to your tank, whether it's zooplankton or, or phytoplankton, because those those skimmers, especially if it's a good one, will suck all of that right out of the water. Um, and you know, basically, what I do with my both my large and my small tank, because both of them have coral in it, so I do, uh, I do put plankton into my tanks. Is I basically turn off my 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 refugium, so I turn off the return line, and no water flows out of my display tank, into the sump where my skimmer and everything else is, and I'll I'll feed the basically it's at that point is where I I feed my tank. I put in the fish food for the fish, um, the plankton either phytoplankton or zooplankton for the coral and anything else that I may be feeding the the uh, oyster eggs or the uh, what are they called golden pearls or whatever um, or the cyclopses or anything like that and in my my opinion it, it allows it to circulate through the tank it allows the the animals in the tank time to consume it before it gets taken down to the refugium and it gets you know any of that stuff gets pulled out through the skimmer or whatever and then anything that's left in the tank does go to the refugium and allows the stuff in there to feed uh, off of you know whatever the excess food in the tank too. Brilliant. Um, what one thing I will say about the skimmers is, is is try and keep on top of the um, the cleaning of them. 
because once they get sort of quite clogged up going up the, the, the cone where the, the bubbles come yes. into the collection cup, if, if that starts getting clogged up and dirty, which normally happens after a few days, um, it will actually make the, the bubbles burst earlier and they might actually climb right up the tube like they need to in yes. the collection cup and it stops it from actually skimming. Yes. Now, your collection cup, um, let's do a little bit, uh, a little comparison. Um, how often do you empty out your collection cup? Oh, now you've got me. It's just putting me on the spot. Um, <laughs> uh, probably every fourth day. Okay, that's that's close to what I do. I usually do mine every two or three days. I empty my collection cup. Um, now, here's the next one. I'm going to put you on the spot again. How often yes, do sir. you clean your skimmer? How often do you disassemble it and clean out the internal inside of it? Oh, um... don't you dare say never. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's probably every four, six weeks, four weeks probably. Okay, yep, and that's that's close to what I do. I do mine uh, about every about every six weeks. Uh, basically, I'm on a rotation. Like every, I, it's like three a three week rotation. Um, after three weeks, I do all of my power heads. All of the power heads come out of my tank. I tear, I break them all down. I clean out all of the internal components. Um, and then the next, you know, three weeks later from there, I do the protein skimmer in my overflow box and stuff like that. So, you know, every six weeks, my all my power heads are getting cleaned out, and then all my overflow box and my in my protein skimmer get cleaned out. Which, you know, what now that you, now that I, I brought that up, now that I mentioned that, <laughs> um, the power heads, it's actually important to clean those. And there's certain types of mechanical filtration that can be added to those. Do you want to mention a little bit about that real quick? I don't think we brought that up. Yeah, uh, quite a lot of the power heads, you can, you can buy some sort of add-on to um, that plugs on the bottom of them to take out you know, your, your waste again. But to uh, be honest, I've, I don't ever use them. So the only time that I might put something like that on be if I've had a kind of major move around in the tank and... Uh, there's a lot of free-floating debris in the water, and I might put something in there just to zap, clear it. Totally agree. I made the mistake sure when I first it. started out, and I, I've i got a, a Hagen's pump, a little power head. I think it's a 180. I don't remember what it is. But um, I went and I got the the extra attachment that goes on there. And and I remember this when I was first starting out, and I remember uh, in a group, and I'm all I was sitting in there bragging on, you know, I've got all this this filtration. I've got this this add-on to my power head, and it's a what was it like a five micron um, filter floss filter, and I'm bragging about it. But it wasn't until a little bit later that I once I started understanding how all this stuff works that I realized that you know I should have just kept my mouth shut because that was a pretty stupid thing. Um, adding these types of filters. Uh, they just they're they're a lot of work they're a lot of maintenance they have to be replaced all the time and what's the worst thing that it does is it reduces the f overall flow on your power head you know people people that have listened to the past episodes have heard me rant and rave about keeping up the high amounts of current in your tank especially in reef tanks you smack Definitely. one of those things on there and it, it it can cut your flow of your tank of your of your power head in half when it's clean and then once it gets all clogged up, I mean, you can pretty much consider that that power head to be, you know, worthless until you take that thing off. Yeah, definitely. I don't, I don't have any um, mechanical fil filtration at all on any of my power heads. 
Yeah, I you know like like I said, I've got it now. Another thing that is with those is you can uh, instead of using mechanical filtration, uh, a lot of them have inserts for uh, a type of chemical filtration like carbon, and uh, we'll get into that in in a next episode. But uh, so there there are some potential benefits, and like uh, you mentioned, Matt, that they can be used for occasional filtering if you did some moves or you've got a lot of, you know, you stirred up the tank or the sand bed or something like that a lot and you've got a lot of uh, free debris that you're trying to collect up. So they, they've they got their purposes. They can be useful if you understand what they do and when to use them. Um, but, I mean, that's pretty much just like everything else we've talked about. They can be useful, but you need to understand when to and when not to use them. Okay, so I think we've about uh, covered a, a good variety of different things regarding mechanical filtration. If anybody's got any more detailed questions regarding the different types of mechanical filtration, when to or not to use them, um, by all means, as with any other topic we discuss about, please send them into podcast at talkingreef.com or uh, check out the forums. There's a, a section in there to ask questions and you can post the question in there in either Myself, Matt, or anybody else in the forums may jump in and, and help you out with, with getting an answer to that. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, one, one thing i just quickly mention. Um, I mentioned a couple of times there about the ecosystem um, method. What I'll do is um, I'll give Rob the link so he can actually post it on the forum so you can have a look and just have a bit of a read. It's quite interesting reading. It's yes. quite a unique way of trying to keep uh, uh, a reef tank and... Um, it does push a few boundaries, like having no skimmer for a start. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, putting some silty type mud in your refugium, which seem, also seems a touch weird. Um, but it, yeah, it's definitely some interesting reading. Yeah, and we'll and I'll put yeah we'll put that in the show notes for anybody that wants to get any more information about that. Cool. So, um, at this point, just want to remind everybody that uh, you're listening to the Talking Reef podcast, um, also heard on NHCWX Radio. Okay, at this point, let's move on to question number one for this episode. Uh, I think it's actually the only question that we have, and we'll go through this question, and we'll, we'll probably wrap the episode up. Uh, do you want to read the question, or do you want me to read the question? Go for it, Rob. Okay, well, does that mean you're going to answer it? If I yep. read it, you got to answer it. Yep, go <laughs> okay. for gold. Okay, here we go. Question number one. This question came in, uh, I think I mentioned this from the forums. It came in from uh, Dion. And he writes in to say, I know you have said a bit of info about water parameters, but any chance you could give some information on the show about what the quote-unquote ideal water parameters should be and maybe how often you should be testing for them? Thanks, Dion. So let's go ahead and give me your answer. Right, okay, the answer I'm going to give to that, it, it does, it very much um, varies from different systems, but one one thing, um, I've been recently having a look at a, um, a book they have in the UK, and I think you can actually get a link for it on your site, is that right, Rob? Yes, absolutely, um, the, I checked this out, and it's going to be, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a link um, on our website for the book that Matt's uh, about to explain, and on, on the Talking Reef website, there's a link on the left-hand side, uh, it says Talking Reef Store, and there will be a link to this book in in that section. 
Yeah, basically, the, the, the book is um, a bit like an encyclopedia on uh, ultimate marine aquariums, and it's got aquariums from all over the world in there, and uh, it explains um, every bit of equipment to what they're keeping in the tank and how it's lit and everything, right way through to the flow rates. Now, and these aren't it, just normal tanks. These are extravagant tanks, aren't they? Well, they're everything from, um, I think the biggest tank that's in there is a 22,000-gallon reef tank, wow. right way through to, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an amazing tank. It's very amazing. And one guy has a full-time job of looking after it, and he gets paid for that. Uh, could you imagine any, a better job any. in the world? <laughs> I think possibly not. Yeah, that would and, just uh, be awesome. And right way through to um, really simple tanks, really small, basic tanks that, you know, sort of 30 okay. gallons. Great. So, and it gives you, actually one of the things the book does is it actually gives you an average. So it gives you the, the, the average amount of um, fly rate that people use and the, the average amount of lighting that's used, the average type of filter and the, how people, whether so people use skimmers or not. It's like and, commonalities in um, hundreds of different tanks. So in reference to Dion's question, this is a, a, an alternate place that you can look. Uh, this book that Matt is mentioning, uh, what was it called again? Uh, it's the Ultimate Marine Aquariums. Right, and we'll have that. Uh, that book will be available through the Talking Reef website, um, but it does, it'll, it'll help go over and give you and everybody else a, a wide range of commonalities in different tanks. Um, like Definitely. Matt, yeah, it's going to give you um, all the different things that he mentioned, uh, what types of lights, filters, um, but more specific to this question, um, I think some of the things that it's going to mention are different chemical levels and water parameters that are averaged through all these different tanks, correct? Yeah, definitely. They're, they're all very successful tanks. So the average is pretty good, actually, to be honest. It, it gives you everything across the board. So what I might be able to do, actually, Rob, is maybe supply you with the text. And you, can, we, can we get that on the site? Um, actually, what you could probably do is, um, if you want, or you can send it to me and I can do it, is I can put it into the... Um, into the forums under the follow-up uh, forum, where that's where we put a lot of the the follow-up comments and stuff to different shows. Um, and so we can go ahead and post it in there. Uh, but yeah. specifically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a quick rundown for Dion, um, basically on some of the the common things that are tested for and where the level should be at. So your first um, your first four or five very common things that you're going to test for. Uh, the first two, of course, are the most common, temperature and salinity. Um, now, these two really vary upon who you're asking. Uh, temperature, it's one of those, It's uh, yeah, like I said, it's one of those things that vary depending on who you're asking. It should be... Just, just one thing there, Rob, um, just so any other people that are listening to this can quite understand that you're not Santa Claus and that uh, the bells aren't Rudolph in the background. It's actually your dog. Oh, that's coming through? Oh, God. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I will try to keep her a little bit more quiet. <laughs> yes, everybody, we do this out of our houses. We don't have a professional studio, so thank you for bearing with us. Um, now, back to what I was mentioning, now that uh, Santa Claus and my reindeer are done bouncing around. Um, the two common things, the salinity and the temperature. Uh, an average temperature for a marine tank in the hobby, if you look on normal websites, I think it says somewhere around 76 to 78 degrees. Um, but what I found is if you actually do your research and look at the average ocean temperatures in a reef 
region, you'll see that your average temperatures are more around 80, 81, 82. Uh, so personally, I keep my tanks at about between 80 and 82 degrees. Um, 82 would be the low. Normally, they're right around, they normally don't fluctuate between 81 and 82. Um, so that's my personal preference, and I think it works real good at that point. Now, what do you normally keep your tank at? Uh, I'm tank. just looking at it as we speak, and I was converting it into your language. Um, <laughs> to my language? Yeah, it's 79.3 as we speak. Okay. Yes, that's, uh, uh, that, that's you know, I, I, there's no problems keeping them, um, you know, at 76, 76. I think 76 is probably a little cold in my opinion. but 79 it was. Right, yeah, exactly. 79 I think is fine. Like I said, I keep mine at about 81, 82 uh, Fahrenheit. And uh, what's what's that in, in Celsius? You can do the conversion for us for our, our not for our metric listeners. Um, that is twenty six, I think. Okay, so we got twenty six degrees Celsius. Um, six point nine. There you to go. Be exact. <laughs> I just pressed the little button on my temperature gauge, and it switches it. Excellent. That's what I was talking about about converting it. Mine, mine's always sat at twenty six or whatever it is. Okay. Okay. Now the next item is salinity. So I'm going to ask you first before I tell you what mine is. What do you keep your salinity? God, I've got me. Do you want me to actually test it live on air? Would that <laughs> oh, be more fun? Excellent. Let's do it. Let's have a live salinity well, you, testing. You talk first. I will talk. You test it. You talk it. first. Okay. So basically, yep. um, salinity, you, you measure in salinity or in specific gravity. Both are pretty specific much measuring. Gravity. Yeah, uh, both are pretty much measuring the same thing. They're measuring the amount of salt in your tank. Um, the salinity is going to measure in a parts per million. The specific gravity is going to. Um, I don't even know what the, it is. The, the number is a little bit different. I'll, I'll give you the common for both. Um, my tank. Mine currently. Oh, you've got, we've got the results. Yeah, we have the results. The so results are in. in. Now, are you, you're doing specific it, gravity or salinity? Specific gravity. Okay. So it is 1.021. Whoa. More... That's low. That's bang in the middle of where it's supposed to be. Oh, I disagree. <laughs> okay. I <can> object. I... <laughs> well, according to my hydrometer, that is bang in the middle of where it's supposed to be. Now, are you, you're, using a, uh, you're using a hydrometer, not a, a fractometer? The, no, the little yeah, floating I'm, needle? I am. Yes. See, I don't follow those. Okay. Also, just like temperature, salinity and specific gravity fall into that same category of different people keep things set at different um, at different things. Um, I'm not going to jump up and say, you know, Matt, you keep yours at 1.21. Uh, like I said, I th personally, I think that that is lower than... Um, what most people keep them at, and I think it's even lower than what the recommended point is. I thought the recommendation was usually to keep it around uh, 1.024 or 2.3. Um, 2.3 two is uh, roughly the, the top. and On your gauge? The bottom. Yeah, on the gauge. That's the it, the preferred on the gauge. Okay. It's 2, 2, 2, 3. Well, there is one thing, reason why I do keep it slightly lower. Okay. Is uh, reason being is um, not that I've talked to them personally, but white spot, ick, yes, how you want to call it, um, finds it very hard to tolerate uh, lower, lower salinity. So if you, if you keep it on the, on the lower end, you can normally keep away some of the white spot. 
Well, you know, and that brings up a good topic, and I think that's something that we should probably talk about in a future show, because um, while it's an unproven theory, and non-scientifically proven, um, it has been unofficially shown by multiple people, including myself, that ick can usually be eradicated by raising your tank temperature above 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, yep. We'll get into that you know, in, a, in a later show. I don't want to tie up a whole lot of time with that. So you keep your, your specific gravity 1.021. And yep. really what I found, again, like the temperature, if you look at the average um, salinity of the ocean and reef areas, it's actually about, I think it's 35 parts per million, 35, 36. I think it's 35 parts per million. And that equates to about... A to a specific gravity of 1.025 to 1.026. And I actually keep just, my... Just to point one thing out there, um, I'm just currently looking at that book to see the average, and it proves me slightly wrong at uh, 1.025 is the average. See, and that's... Not that you're wrong, because there there may be cases where... You know, it, here, here's the important thing, and what I do want to mention here. Um, and I, I used to bring this up a lot on the beginning shows... I say that you should keep your specific gravity at 1.025 to 1.026. Now, how long have you had that tank running? Oh, um, probably four months. But four it was literally it was moved from a tank that had been going for eight, 18 months, two years. So okay, so let me let me rephrase that question. How long have you been keeping your specific gravity at that level? Oh, two years. Nearly. Okay, and you, and it has not caused any major problems for you. No, not really. Okay, so you know, like I was saying, I, I've talked about this in in many of the past shows. There is definitely more than one way to keep your tank. There are so there's so many right ways to do it. There's so many wrong ways to do it. Um, it's it's nothing should be taken as gospel. If it works for you and it does not cause any and you don't have any problems in your tank you you don't need to to freak out and say oh my god my my specific gravity is at 1.021 i need to change it if you don't have any problems don't worry about it now if you want to change it go ahead keep a close eye on your tank that specific you know your salinity level is not something that should be changed rapidly um but i just wanted to reiterate the point that it's something that can you know it can vary from place to place and different people keep their levels at different things. Um, now, let's wrap this back in real quick because I realized that we were on a rant and a rave and we're trying to answer this guy's question here. So, um, Okay, so we've covered temperature. Uh, we've covered um, your salinity level. Now, the other uh, four basic items that you're going to test are going to be your nitrate, your nitrite, and your, your ammonia and the pH. Now, the first three are very simple. Your nitrate, your nitrite, and your ammonia should always be zero. If you're looking for the quote-unquote ideal, they should be zero. Um, depending on the type of tank that you have, you may be able to tolerate a certain amount of nitrates, nitrites, or ammonia. Ammonia, ammonia can usually be handled in very small amounts for small periods of time, by most of your tank inhabitants. If you have an ammonia registering in your test, you should work to get rid of it, don't ignore it, but don't freak out, you shouldn't have any immediate problems. 
uh, nitrites with an I are extremely poisonous to fish. Uh, they will cause, I mean, you know, nitrates can cause death of fish. So if you notice nitrates, you need to work very hard to get rid of those. Uh, nitrates with an A is actually generally um, in small to medium amounts, won't bother fish a whole lot, but it's actually very, very um, deadly to your invertebrates, being, you know, inverte normal invertebrates in coral. Uh, they can't handle nitrates. So ideally, they should all be zero. If you detect any of them, they need to be adjusted. Um, so pH, where do you keep your pH? Do you know off the top of your head? I hope so. Um, um, to be honest, I can't remember the last time I tested for it. <laughs> That's not un that uncommon. I'll, I'll... That's the, that isn't the textbook answer. No, it's um, not, I, I... but you know what? That's the real-life answer. Um... Yeah, it is the real-life answer. I, I generally, I know my tank so well now, if something's wrong, it, it flags itself up pretty quickly. Yes. Because I now... know that a certain coral won't open or... Uh, a certain fish isn't happy. Generally, it's not a fish, but it's normally a coral won't open. Right. And if that's the case, I know that I need to work out why. Yes. Yeah. And I, I the actual, the second part of that question is how often we, sh how should, how often should we test? And I'm gonna, I'll talk about that in a, in a second. But um, the the proper level uh, is 8.2 for your pH. Um. So. That's normally where it should be kept. Um, the other two items, three items that I wanted to bring up is the, the calcium, alkalinity, phosphate. Um, those are just the, the few items that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, your calcium uh, should be kept at about 350 to 400 parts per million. Uh, that's important if you're keeping stony corals, clams, oysters, anything that have a, a calcified skeleton. Those are the things that are going to be pulling the calcium out of the water. If it's a fish-only tank, you really don't need to worry about the calcium as much. Your alkalinity, uh, I believe it is between, oh, what is it, 11 dKH? Six, roughly anything higher than 6.5 to roughly about 15. D, is that in dKH? Yep. Uh, dKH, you, uh, German average. degrees, or what? I can't remember what it's called. Yes, yeah, it's, it's German. I yes, uh, German degrees of hardness. That's I think that's what it refers to. But yes, it's depending on on what it is. Now, uh, the alkalinity, as I mentioned in episode 13, um, alkalinity, calcium, and pH are all very very tightly related. Uh, there were some some comments for some listeners to actually go into some to go a lot more in depth about that relationship, and I'm working to put together a future show for that. So bear with me. I am working on it. Um, and then the last thing that I mentioned was phosphate. Phosphate usually comes from bad water sources um, or from uh, certain types of food. And phosphate can cause algae problems and all that different stuff. Phosphate should always be totally undetectable. Um, so now that I think that we just beat the heck out of that question, I think that dog's dead. We can move on to the last part of his question, which is how often should you test? Now... From my standpoint, I test my, I look at my thermometer on a regular basis, usually because it's there, and I can glance at it and I can get a reading. My salinity, I check before and after my water changes, and then periodically I'll check, you know, in between water changes, but I don't check it all that often. Now, those are the two things that I check the most. 
Now, here's where we get into the part where we're going we're gonna to come up with some non-textbook answers. Now, for the people listening, here's my disclaimer, and this is going to apply to me and Matt both. Me and Matt have been doing this for a long time. This is not a recommended approach for people that are new to the hobby. But, Matt, how often do you check your nitrates? Um... I can't remember the last time I probably did it. It was, it was quite a while ago. T to be honest, um, a lot of the tests that I do uh, normally when I know there's a noticeable problem within my tank. Yes, and that's um, the point it, that I wanted to bring up. firefighting rather than exactly actually, uh, Because I, I, I have a specific coral which I know that if anything's out, that it just won't come out. Xenia so, are actually very good for that. Uh, uh, not the pom-pom zania, the zania elongata. Those are the long, stretchy zanias that they grow the very long branching arms. And what if the you pulsing zania, think you of? No, those are the smaller, the small branchy ones that the both of the zanias, the pom-pom and the the elongata will will pulse. But the the difference is that the the elongata they're elongated. The stalks are very they grow very 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 long. Uh, but those I actually use those in my tanks to, and you monitor those, and you can get a feel for your water parameters by looking at those. You can also tell nitrate and or nitri nitrite levels by watching your fish. Once you learn how your fish behave, um, you can tell that if they look like they're having problems breathing, uh, if they're breathing heavy, um, it's usually I found in my tank would be you know it would be an indication of a nitrite problem, and then you can algae growth. If you start noticing a small algae bloom or algal bloom, that's usually a direct indication that you've got a, a phosphate or a nitrate problem. So once you learn your tank, there's a lot of a lot of different things that you you don't necessarily have to test for on a regular basis. Um, the one thing that I do recommend, I do it. Uh, this is just my recommendation. When you're doing your water changes, you should make sure that you know exactly what your current temperature, salinity, and pH of your tank is, and you should make sure that you match your the water that you're the new water you're putting into your tank. You should make sure that it matches that temperature, salinity, and pH. Uh, that those are I use I do those when I do my water changes. Um, they're they're very easy to test for. The temperature and salinity can be tested with, you know, kits that you don't have to replace stuff all the time. Uh, pH can be tested with uh, electronic devices also, but pH test kits are not expensive either. So, um, for the normal person, the beginner, the person that is the person that is not intimately familiar with their tank, when you first start up your tank, you should be testing your water on a regular basis, being um, every couple days, to try to get an understanding of when your what phase of your cycle that you're in and figure out when your cycle has ended and stuff like that. Once your cycle is completed and you started stocking your tank, I would say that until you know you get extremely, you reach probably a, a high intermediate or advanced level, you should be testing your water parameters every week or every two weeks. So that's my, that's my two cents on that. Anything you want to add to that? Uh, I, I, I do agree with you on that one. I think it's um, at the beginning. I, I used to do quite a, a regular amount of tests. Yes. And just 
the further I've got into it, ones have dropped off. Like I think one of the first ones that I, I, I removed from the regime was I used to um, drop off ammonia and just do nitrite. Yep. To make sure my knew that my fil my fill system is still working okay. Because normally if you lose, if you get high on one, you probably got high on the other. Exactly. Well, yeah, nitrate ni uh, ammonia is converted into nitrate. So if you notice an, a a nitrite reading or a nitrite nit either one, the nitrate or nitrite. Um, it's usually an indication that you've got ammonia. So, absolutely, you can probably eliminate the one with the other two. Again, and for advanced uh, reef keepers only. Uh, go ahead, you. I was. I cut you off. You were going to say something else. Yeah, is um, one of the other things that I, I actually quickly removed from testing was actually nitrate. Reason being is, is um, I've always been running some sort of mechanism, which we'll explain in another podcast. But uh, to remove nitrate, so I've always had things like calerpa growing, which once you have it established, removes every single trace of nitrate. They, the they are, it, so. is, it is very yes, it is very efficient at doing that. Again, these these are recommendations for advanced reefers. If you're new to it, make sure you test on a regular basis. Uh, the last two items, uh, calcium alkalinity. Uh, it, this really depends on the type of tank you have. If your pH level is always normal and you don't have a reef tank, you probably don't have to worry about testing your alkalinity. If you have a reef tank and you have a lot of stony coral or stuff that needs calcium, getting an understanding of where your calcium level is, especially if you're adding Kalkwasser or any type of calcium additive, um, it's very important to make sure you have a good idea of where your calcium levels are. Uh, refer referencing a previous show, you should always test anything that you're dosing. You should never dose something in your tank if you don't know what the current level is. So, uh, anything else that you want to add to that? I think we pretty much beat that one to death. I think we're going to end up with a pretty long show here. Yeah, definitely. I, th I think that um, Dion's definitely got his money's worth on that question. Yeah, I, you know what? I can't think of a time that we spent this long answering a question. Um, I, I think at this point the show's pushing over 45 minutes. Cool. Um, there's one thing I've, I've definitely got to say to you. Um, I've, I've got a bit of a bone to pick with you, actually, Rob. Uh-oh. Yep, from the last show. <laughs> Wait a minute, now... <laughs> do you know what I'm going to ask you about? I do not. We, you know, Normally, me and Matt sit down before the shows, and we, we kind of go over the shows, and we get a good idea of everything that we're going to talk about, so we're familiar with the topics. And this one I don't know about, so you're catching me out of the blue here. Right, basically, where is the survey on naming the cleaner shrimp? Oh, you know I've what? Been, I've been I've been visiting <laughs> the site, waiting for it to turn up, and it still hasn't turned up. Actually, you're absolutely right, and it was about two two nights ago I was in there. Uh, actually, it was when I was creating the, the survey that's up there right now about whether you know what people think about having uh, the co-host or you know having you on the show which for anybody that hasn't seen it there is a poll on the website that says uh, how do you like the new format with the show uh, yes I like it better with two I preferred with one or it doesn't really matter hopefully everybody likes it better with two um, but yes when I was in there creating that poll I thought about the one about naming my cleaner shrimp and what I realized is for me to create a survey in there I have to give available options for you to pick from. So what do you call, what should I call my cleaner shrimp? I would have had to pick, say, five names to stick in there, and I didn't have anything to pick. So 
maybe we should uh, open up a thread in the forum and just let everybody throw their two cents in there, and maybe we'll we'll take the top couple names and make a survey out of that. Or what do you think about that? How's that uh, an think, answer I for think... your question? <laughs> Catching you on your hop, not too bad. Um, I think we should have to post in the forum. I do agree that yeah, you can't pick a few names because that wouldn't be fair, though, would it? Of course um, not. Yeah, and I'm always for fairness. <laughs> Exactly. He's got he's got issues. He needs a name. <laughs> this is true. You know, but what's going to happen is he's going to get a name, and then all my other fish are just going to be disappointed because they're going to be nameless. Yeah, but he's a clean shrimp. They've always got little personalities, clean shrimp. They do. They do. Although my, my daughter has taken it upon herself because I've got a lot of the, the – pretty much everything left in my tank, which – yes, left in my tank that we'll get into that into another show. Um, is from Finding Nemo. So I've got Dory, I've got Nemo, I've got Bubbles, and so technically the cleaner shrimp should be Jacques, because that's what the name of the cleaner shrimp was in yep. Finding Nemo. Yep, yeah, you're right. That is a bad concept. If um, truth be known, my nano tank has a pair of uh, clowns in it, which are um, also <laughs> got Nemo. What was it, Nemo? My and, daughter. Uh, and what was the uh, Nemo? Oh. Marlin. Marlin, yes, yes, yes. But uh, there's a funny story about mine. Uh, for anybody that's watching, uh, listening to this from the UK. Yeah, well, um, real quickly, I think, you know, if anybody doesn't want to hear our ranting and raving, you can probably yeah, go, just yeah, off, yeah. go away now. Basically, <laughs> one fish is called Nemo, and um, my girlfriend got slightly confused on the other one's name. Instead of calling it um, Marlin, like it should have been called, it's now called... Um, uh, a name of a bloke that's out of a soap opera in the UK called uh, Marlon. Marlon. So we have Marlon and Nemo, <laughs> and it's stuck. So, oh well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, you know, I don't watch UK soap operas. Hell, I don't watch it's a US soap, soap operas. You know, what I have seen, though, is I have seen uh, uh, Spanish soap operas, and those are those are pretty interesting. No, it's not personally my TV. Well, you know, it's it's like it's like, and no offense to country music lovers, but it's like country music, uh, music videos. You don't need the sound. You can mute the sound. Everything, you know, you just you. Okay, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Anybody from the United States that has, they'll 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 get that. I'll I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> Enough of that. Anything else you want to rant and rave about before we before we wrap the show up? Um, no, I think that's about it. Um, yeah, a few more um, responses to the poll about the co-host would be nice, as long as they're not negative towards me. I don't mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but we do. I mean, we do want honest votes. And quite frankly, I mean, if if there's a lot of people that prefer only having one host, well, tough. <laughs> um, I'm probably in the future, you know, occasionally going to do shows by myself, but. I have a lot more fun doing it this way. It's a little, it's a little bit more work, but I, you know, I like doing it this way. So we'll probably stick with this. And the, the votes we're having at the moment sort of, um, sort of reflect that. We have quite a few people that don't really carry the way, but yeah, there's more people saying, yeah, we prefer the, the two hosts on there. Well, you're not going in there and like voting ten times that you want two hosts, are you? Can you can you not let that one out of the bag? <laughs> Well, don't worry, because the the system actually keeps track of who votes and who doesn't vote, and it'll only allow a member to vote once. So okay. we don't have told to... me that like, a couple of days ago. <laughs> we don't have to worry about Matt uh, swaying the votes to, to stay on here, because we're going to keep him around anyways. Yeah, now, now we're on the radio as well. We need a bit backup. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
What was the name of that radio station again? Their radio station. It's full of like, the alphabet, isn't it? More yes, like? it is NHCWX Radio. And um, this is something we started recently. I talked about at the beginning of the show. And uh, we are broadcasting on there. I've been working with the, the people at that radio station. It's a bunch of great people. The radio station is actually a news and weather station. So for anybody that's been you know in the United States or abroad, because it is worldwide, that has been interesting in, in wanting to get updated information or current information on what's been going on in, in the Gulf with the, all the hurricanes that have been going on, uh, this is actually... My understanding is it is an award-winning uh, weather reporting station. And throughout these hurricanes and stuff like that, in fact, we almost, were, our first episode actually aired uh, this week uh, on Wednesday, uh, which actually is, it aired about an hour and a half ago from when we're recording this now. And it almost uh, didn't air because of the hurricane coverage. Because when when there's... Uh, extreme weather situations like that, all of their programming gets bumped for this. But what they're doing is they're trying to expand uh, their their broadcast content, and they've they've actually got a lot of very very nice programs for other people that are for people that are into a lot of other podcasts. They'd be familiar with uh, some of the shows they do. Uh, Planetary Society Radio, which if you've if you're into space and astronomy and current events, uh, it's an excellent excellent. Uh, podcast and it they, they also stream that over the internet a uh, very good show um, they also do uh, the science at nasa podcast which that's a lot shorter uh podcast i believe that i believe they do science at nasa i don't have the web page up right now i'm trying to do it off the top of my head and they have a couple other shows that they do syndication on and they have a lot of uh shows where they actually have djs and stuff uh it, i guess they wouldn't be djs they'd be talk hosts or whatever but they do uh, broadcasting with original content for the station, so it's, it's they're great people over there. They're great to work with. Um, I was very excited to get the opportunity to be on that station. I, it was it was it was wonderful. Brilliant, brilliant. So hopefully there'll be a lot of new listeners listening, and uh, I know we've only got an hour time slot on there from eight to nine. So hopefully we don't go over that hour. I'm gonna have to edit some of this out. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways. Um, I don't know. Is so there what, any... we got, what we got coming up next week? Oh, next we, week. We, 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 were we moving on to biological? Um, actually, well, it, that's probably we'll probably decide we're going to move on to our, our second um, a, a, a installment in our filtration series, um, which is in my list. Yes, you're right. Biological filtration. Um, oh, that's going to be a mammoth topic. Yes, absolutely. Very controversial. Yes, that too. Much more controversial than our measly little salinity and temperature debates. Um, exactly. Oh, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's up to you. Do, do you want to try to do chemical filtration first? Because biological filtration is going to be pretty nasty. Oh, no, that, that's going in the deep end. All right. We're going to dive in feet first and just go for it. So, yeah, next uh, our next episode, uh, which should be out next week, uh, is going to be we'll, – we'll be discussing the the ins and outs of biological filtration. So that should be that should be inciting and very very controversial. Just what just what what we like. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm sure you can try and pick me up on uh, things that I do that are completely textbook. Hey, now I wasn't picking you apart that bad. I was just <laughs> pointing out <laughs> pointing out what some people may consider flaws. But if you're having good luck, I'll leave you alone. It's um uh for for a couple of listeners. 
you, they'll understand this, but if they're fathers, I'm just about to be a father again. I currently have a daughter, and uh, at the moment, time is on very short, so I'm, I'm getting by with that uh, reef maintenance at the moment. Oh, yeah, so yeah, well, once you get another one, you're going to have two kids, yeah. Uh, totally understandable. So... All right. Well, I think we've I think we've extended our, our probably our, our time window that we've got here, and we've definitely this is the absolute longest show that we've ever done uh, on the podcast. Most of our shows have always been uh, about a half hour or less. So, anyways, <laughs> well, uh, I personally think I need to um, go and hit the sack because it's actually uh, twenty five to three in the morning over here in the UK. Oh yes, yes, and we're about nine thirty here, so I've got a couple more hours, lots of time to do my my post-production and get this ready to go out on the internet so this one will be published tomorrow actually by from where we're at now so anyways okay so let's let's go ahead and and wrap the show up and um say goodbye matt goodbye and uh goodbye rob okay um i just want to thank everybody for joining us and thank everybody uh from the uh that's listening in now from the the nhcwx radio station uh, any questions and comments, please direct them to either the website or to uh, podcast at talkingreef.com. And we will talk to you next week. Good night. Good night. Good night.